Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the last in our five-part series where we discuss our veterans' experience in the context of the conflicts they participated in. You know, I have had such a great time learning about these wars and doing this series, and it's just by happenstance that we saved my favorite historic time period for last. So today we're going to be talking about World War II, and our discussion today will be a little bit different than the previous ones. I think for the most part, people are pretty familiar with the nuts and bolts of World War II and a little bit more so than maybe some of the other conflicts we've discussed. And so today we're going to focus more on the soldier experience, particularly the experience of Black soldiers in this time period. And joining me today to talk about this unique piece of history that we really just don't talk about often enough is Dr. Alex Clark. Most of our residents at Duke probably don't know Dr. Clark because she's more of a Durham VA alumna who's now an endocrinologist at the Pittsburgh VA. So just to introduce her briefly, she got her MD from the University of Pittsburgh. She came to Duke for residency in internal medicine and just happened to be my classmate. And then after residency, she left to go back to Pitt for her endocrinology fellowship, where she's stayed on since that time. So she's currently faculty in Pittsburgh's VA Division of Endocrinology, and she's also an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where she serves as the co-leader for the Curriculum Reform Subcommittee, just to name one of the many, many hats that she wears. Welcome, Dr. Clark. Thank you for doing this with me today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Caputo. I'm very excited to be here and happy to be reaching out back to the Durham VA and the awesome residents at Duke. So thanks for having me. We miss you terribly. It wasn't intentional, the timing of this, but it's actually very apropos that we're doing this today. The day that we're recording this episode just happens to be the day that President Biden just signed into law a bill that confirmed Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an exciting change that's happened. So I'm proud of our country. Yeah. So let's start like this. Dr. Clark, why don't you tell us a little bit about where your specific interest in World War II comes from? Well, my grandfather on my mom's side was a World War II veteran. And also, I've ever since I started working with the veterans in medical school, I always knew I wanted to work at the VA and there are just certain of my patients along the way who have really touched my heart. And one of them happens to be a World War II veteran who was one of my clinic patients when I was at the Durham VA. That's where I had my primary care clinic. And he was just so amazing. He was a black World War II Marine and he was amazing. His family was amazing. I just adored him. They are known as the greatest generation, right? Yeah. They have some of the best stories. And I think a lot of us from our generation of trainees, you know, got to know and remember some of our World War II patients as some of the best ones. We have way fewer World War II veterans now than we did even when we were training. And they're such a precious commodity. In North Carolina, for example, we have less than 9,000. And in the Durham VA's catchment area, there's less than 1,000 left. In Pennsylvania, we have less than 19,000 World War II veterans. And Pennsylvania is obviously a much bigger state than ours. So, you know, if our current trainees have the fortune 
to meet and get to interact with one of these World War II veterans, they should absolutely tell about it. And we've mentioned this in some of our previous podcasts, the My Story consult should absolutely be used if you get to meet one of these guys and hear their stories, either from them or their family members, because people just love to tell their stories and their experiences. Absolutely. Dr. Clark, tell us a little more about your grandfather. What was his role? He was a cook on a submarine in the Navy. Yeah. He died pretty early on in my life. So I don't know too much more than that. Wow. So some of those details were lost. And this was your mom's dad? Yeah. Gotcha. Out of curiosity, did he ever talk to any of your family members about his experiences, even if those stories never made it to you? Or did he kind of keep it close? Yeah, you know, he kept it really close to his chest. He didn't really talk about his time in the military very much, except for the fact that he met my grandmother there when he was stationed in Panama. But other than that, we don't know much more. Wow. And so he's one of 1.2 million soldiers in total who were Black out of the greater than 16 million people that were involved in the conflict from the United States alone, which is a tremendous number of people. We should probably do just a really brief history lesson just to make sure that we've got the time frame together. So World War II began in Europe in September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and then Great Britain and France responded by declaring war on Germany. And then we entered the war in December 1941 after the Japanese bombers attacked Pearl Harbor. So in World War II, there were the, the principal participants were the Axis powers versus the Allied powers. So the Axis powers were Germany, Italy, and Japan. And the Allies were France, Great Britain, uh, the United States, and at that time, the Soviet Union. And interestingly, we, we don't talk about it too much, but China technically counts as one of the allies as well, but that's more because of conflict with Japan than anything else. Really, the tensions had been simmering in Europe almost since World War I, so it was a matter of time before this was going to happen, and it didn't really end until it ended in Europe in 1945 in April when the Allied forces finally converged on Berlin and Hitler committed suicide, and just days later, Germany surrendered. But the war in the Pacific kept going until that summer in August. There were fire bombings and ultimately two atomic bombs that were dropped in Japan, and then finally the war was over on September 2nd, 1945. It lasted in total about six years. We were involved for the last four of them. And, you know, every single soldier has a story to tell. But even, I think it's important to take a step back because we can't really understand the experience of the Black soldiers without understanding the Black experience in the country at the time. Dr. Clark, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, at that time, the Jim Crow laws were present and the roots of Jim Crow were born from slavery. So the Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that basically legalized racial segregation and discrimination. We've all heard the doctrine of separate but equal, and that was kind of what Jim Crow was based around. It existed from post-Civil War era until 1968. And it was meant to marginalize African-Americans by denying access to opportunities such as voting, education, obtaining jobs. 
and it basically supported the ideology of Black inferiority and uplifted white supremacy. And the concept of separate but equal was kind of just a way for white people to feel better about segregation, but in reality, things were never actually equal. And so then 1940 rolls around. We're not technically involved in the war yet, but everyone kind of knows that it's coming. And so the Selective Training and Service Act gets passed in September of 1940, which was the first peacetime draft in the history of the United States. So they were aware that we were going to need soldiers soon. And they were also aware when they were passing this law that 10% of the population at this point was Black. And they were going to need to have Black people involved in the war. Initially, when it was passed, it applied to all men, regardless of race, ages 18 to 35. And then when the war was finally declared in 1941, they expanded that age range to 18 to 45. Although all men up to the age of 65, technically at least, had to register. That included Black and white citizens. And Black civil rights leaders like A. Philip Randolph saw this as an opportunity to help Black people get treated equally. Absolutely. Yeah, there was an amendment that was placed that basically said that any person, regardless of race or color, shall be afforded opportunity to volunteer for the induction. And that there should be no discrimination against any person on account of race or color. And even though that was in the law, in practice, that was not how it ended up working out. These civil rights leaders advocated that units be integrated as well, because every single war up to this point, Black people fought, even dating all the way back to the Revolutionary War, but they were always in segregated units. The president at the time was FDR, and he was not on board with integrating units at that time. He was afraid that it would deter white men from enlisting, and so everything was segregated from barracks to blood banks, very much in parallel with the Jim Crow laws that existed in the country at the time. Yeah, so the Army, Navy, and Marines, they were all segregated, uh, or they segregated African Americans into separate units because of the belief that they were not as capable, not as smart. And there are even reports of some people feeling like Black people are more cowardly somehow. And so you're right that the segregation continued. And it wasn't until 1948 when Truman actually ended the segregated era of within the American military. So during the entire World War II, they were segregated units. Despite all of these barriers and despite all of these reasons to not want to get involved, 2.5 million Black men registered for the draft. And we often discuss Black units like the Tuskegee Airmen as, you know, these heroic members of history. And we'll talk about them today because they were heroes, but they were a minority, actually. Like Dr. Clark said, 90% of Black soldiers were not felt to be fit for combat. And so most of them were assigned to jobs like labor or service. Yeah. So, you know, and I, I don't mean to talk about being laborers as not as important because if you read some areas, they talk about the military black labor force being the backbone of the America's military labor needs. They did things like built air bases and airfields and roads and transported artillery and ammunition, troops and airplanes. They drained swamps and shorelines for docks and piers. So they definitely played a significant role. The issue is that they didn't even have the chance or if they wanted to be in these combat service units, they didn't even have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, you know, 
it's not for lack of wanting to. Black soldiers really did still want to fight. And as I was reading about this topic, one of the things that I, I had not heard about that I was so excited to learn about was the Double V campaign, which was sort of one of the predecessors to modern civil rights movements. It was, the, it was coined by the Pittsburgh Courier, which is now your hometown, Dr. Clark. That was the biggest Black periodical in the country. It encouraged Black people to join the war effort and also the government to let them participate in the way that they wanted to. And the Double V campaign stood for victory for democracy overseas and against domestic racism. And when the war ended, it became the single V campaign to continue fighting against the internal enemy of racism in the country. Yeah, so it became a rallying cry for Black journalists, activists, citizens to secure both this uh, victory, like you said, over fascism abroad, and then also this victory at home. It just blows my mind to think that the, there were people who enlisted and wanted to fight for a country where they weren't treated even, there are some reports that they weren't treated as well as the prisoners of war that were here. The prisoners of war from Germany and Italy could use the same restrooms and you know that kind of thing. And they still weren't able to use the same restrooms as, as their fellow veterans. It's just, it's crazy to think that this was going on at that time. Yeah, and they often even more than just not being treated equally suffered abuse from fellow soldiers and from supervisors. They were mistreated, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, and they were not given access to the same resources that their colleagues had. And yet they still fought and they still participated. They still fought. The NAACP and others found this as an opportunity to be able to progress the African-American experience in the country to show people that we deserve these rights. Yeah. And so there were maybe about 10% that did still successfully attain officer status. And even the ones that did still weren't allowed to lead anyone except other Black men. Towards the end of the war, it kind of became a numbers game because we were losing a tremendous number of people and we needed more soldiers. And so by 1944, Black soldiers got a chance to be more active. They were doing things like piloting planes and getting officer positions. And that's where stories like the Tuskegee Airmen came into play. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. That's kind of where these opportunities came in. But even when you read about it in the literature about the Tuskegee Airmen, they talk about the Tuskegee experiment, right? So they took Mm -hmm. these squadron of African-American male college students and gave them the same training to be uh, fighters and bomber pilots and navigators and engineers to, to see, are they capable of this? So even then they're testing it. Are, are they really capable of this? But at that point, they were able to show, we can do this, we can do this just as well as our counterparts. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity. It's sad that it came about so late and that it probably wouldn't have been there if it wasn't so needed at the time. But I, you know, I'm glad that the veterans were able to show what, what they could do. Yeah, yeah. They really stepped up for their country. And the Tuskegee Airmen escorted bombers in Italy. And even though they didn't really exist until 1944, they flew 1,600 combat missions, which is incredible. And then we've all heard about them, but there were these other groups that I hadn't heard of before I was researching for this, like the Red Ball Express and the 761st Tank Battalion. Dr. Clark, tell us a little bit about those. 
Yeah, so the Red Ball Express, so they transported fuel and supplies to basically the frontline uh, Allied Army in 1944. And so the, the Red Ball Express was a, basically a, a travel path that they went through with these trucks. And they ended up, by the end of it, it only lasted from August of 1944 to November of 1944, but it was extremely successful carrying uh, up over 500,000 tons of supplies. And so in order for the people at the front line to do what they do, they needed the supplies, they needed food, they needed the fuel, all of that. And so the 761st Tank Battalion were also called the Black Panthers. They named, named themselves that. Um, this was in late 1944. They were assigned to General Patton's U.S. Third Army, and they were attached to the 96th Infantry Division, and they were the first African-American tanker unit to see combat in Europe. So cool. And they were present in, all over France under Patton, including at the Battle of the Bulge. So they were really there for some of the biggest events in this entire war. <laughs> yeah, they assisted with liberating over 30 towns uh, all over Europe. So yeah, absolutely. Wow. So with our Black and our white soldiers working together at the end, the war finally comes to a finish in 1945. We hear a lot about the reception of soldiers upon their return after the Vietnam War, but we don't talk about it as much in World War II. The general sense is that these people were, these veterans were perceived as heroes upon their return and the country was grateful for their service, but that wasn't the experience of Black soldiers. Yeah, unfortunately, that wasn't necessarily the case. They were not treated as heroes. Some of them were attacked by angry people who were afraid that they would have now this new sense of superiority or that, you know, they should be given these equal rights that, you know, people didn't think they deserved. So the GI Bill was legislation that was passed to support soldiers returning home. So they were supposed to support with home loans, with education and college tuition, job placement, and other things to help these soldiers reintegrate back into society and make up for the time that they had lost. But Black soldiers were often denied those benefits, either systematically or through intimidation, like those mobs that you mentioned. Yeah, so, you know, thousands of Black veterans took advantage of these benefits immediately, but you could imagine that just the fact that if you wanted to go to college, most of the colleges were white only colleges. So even the access to be available to go to college wasn't even there. And same thing with the job training, they could decide that we don't want to train you here. So you live in the state where you just don't have access to these supposed job training programs that you earned. And yes, they would help with VA home loans and things like that, but you didn't have a choice of where exactly you wanted to live. It was still segregated. There were only certain neighborhoods you could live in. So, And even the people who were giving out the mortgages were able to discriminate against the people who they were giving it to because the VA could co-sign on the loans, but they weren't actually guaranteeing the loans. So private financial institutions, banks or otherwise, could just refuse people. We mostly talk about this happening in the South, and certainly the Southern states were uh, the most vocal about their position, but this happened in the North and the South. Ultimately, the GI Bill drove a bigger gap 
in affluence between white and black veterans, even though that wasn't its intention, uh, just because of how unequally it was distributed. And even now there's a wealth gap between white and black Americans who are descendants of World War II veterans who should have been el eligible for these benefits, but just didn't have access to them. This discussion and the learning that I did to put this together has really given context to how a lot of today's disparities have deep roots in things that happened a really long time ago. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I think getting into this history, really reading about it, it, it really blows my mind that the, the risk that people were willing to take to just show that they deserved these basic human rights, basic equality, it just shows me how much this country has meant along the way. And, you know, even though we still have our trials and tribulations that we're trying to get through, you can see the progress that has been made. Uh, just even in the VA, working in the VA, you wouldn't really notice this right now, but I'm glad that we're shining a light on it and talking about it because it's a part of military history that I, I had never really sat down to consider. If nothing else, just reading these stories from these individual soldiers has been so inspirational. And there's so many different ways to be a hero. And having one person's experience be different from someone else's doesn't make one more or less of a hero than the other. Ultimately, all of these people worked together for the same common goal. And that's just an incredibly American thing that's very moving. And I, I would encourage all of the listeners here to read more about this, read more about the experience of all the soldiers, including the Black soldiers, and truly, if you are fortunate enough to get to meet one of these guys, please get to know them a little bit better, get their stories and commit them to memory, because we won't be able to do that forever. Yeah, absolutely. Just the World War II veterans are so precious. And like you said, just sit down and talk to them if you have the ability to meet any of them or have the pleasure of being able to take care of them. It makes me reflect on that amazing Black Marine patient that I had in residency. Taking care of him was, it was great in, in multiple ways. And I just wish, especially after doing all this research and learning more about this period of time, I wish I had taken more time to sit down and talk to him and ask him about his experiences in World War II. Dr. Clark, it has been an absolute pleasure talking about history with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge. I would encourage the residents to look at your curriculum website to get some more references for what we talked about and for more personal reading. And please reach out if you have stories about World War II patients that you've met, uh, because we would love to compile those and put them into something that we can all reference again. And as always, the views and opinion expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham or Pittsburgh VA or the Veterans Health Administration.